Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. Welcome to the latest episode of Join the Dots podcast. Today, we're focusing on air pollution. Air pollution has been much in the news. For the first time, it's been put on the death certificate of somebody, of nine-year-old Ella Adu Kissy Deborah by the London coroner. It's also been associated with susceptibility to COVID, which is obviously very important to us at the moment. Air pollution is not a new problem. In fact, some of the worst pea supers in London were back in the 1950s, and we've certainly seen it in other cities around the world. But our understanding has increased. So today we're going to look at the causes of air pollution and some of the choices we can make to reduce the impact of air pollution. Our guest today is Oliver Lord from Environmental Defence Fund Europe, who works on air quality, and he will now introduce himself in a bit more detail. Oliver, welcome. Thanks. It's nice to join you. Uh, You're welcome to call me Ollie for the podcast. I've been working on clean air policy and projects for the past decade or so, predominantly based in London for the public sector and uh, recently into the NGO sector, which is a great different lens to be looking at this uh, issue. And a lot of my experience has been on trying to reduce transport pollution, especially, which is a major course of uh, health impacts in London. Let's start with what we mean by air pollution. Air pollution is the presence of harmful substances in the air. So you could say it's dust, it's emissions like carbon monoxide, lead, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxides, volatile organic compounds. And there are lots of sort of toxic chemicals like mercury, arsenic, benzene. We'll have more detail on definitions and lists of pollutants on our website. But it's basically air that we breathe that contains these harmful substances that affect our health, but also affect vegetation and buildings and materials too. Worldwide, air pollution is a big killer. According to World Health Organization figures, there is about 7 million deaths a year that's linked to air pollution. Just over half of that is to do with air pollution outside and about three and a bit million of it is to do with air pollution inside the home. And again, we'll share the links to all the infographics that World Health Organization has on our website. Why does air pollution kill people? It because it affects our cardiovascular system, so it it's linked scientifically to heart disease, to lung cancers, bronchitis, asthma attacks, and it also is linked to strokes. It causes these diseases, but also it it, it exab- what's the word? I can't say it. Exacerbates. It exacerbates the <laughs> symptoms of these diseases once you have them. I think that's a really important point mm-hmm. because um, the the deaths 
that we talk about are just sort of the tip of the iceberg. So the the impact mm-hmm. that air pollution can have on an unborn child, for example, low birth weight when they arrive, leading to smaller lungs, leading to uh, respiratory problems. So you, we should always, when we're talking about air pollution, think of sort of deaths as the tip of the iceberg. And then underneath, it's all these impacts that people have to live with throughout their lives um, that, as you say, exacerbates um, mm. several different types of illness. And, and as Jill said at the beginning, like, it's very related to COVID as well. And presumably, the pollutants that we're exposed to change over time. And I'm kind of thinking in London, because that's where I live. As we've moved away from coal-fired electricity generation, that must have changed the nature of the pollutants that we face. As we drive more, also changes that. Is that a fair assumption? And do we need to treat these things differently? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you were mentioning the pea supers, the great smog of London in the 50s, and, and a lot of that was linked to coal burning. And we saw the emergence of new legislation in the UK called the Clean Air Act in, in the mid-20th century, which really transformed where we should be burning that sort of fuel and helped to get rid of these great smogs that we could see in front of our eyes. The inspirational story of Bankside Power Plant, which was actually oil-fired, that's now the world's biggest modern art gallery. So it really shows how mm. you can uh, you can sort of remove this problem with the will and technology. But as Jill says, the problem has really moved on because we had a big problem with lead in the 90s, it's fair to say, in the 80s. And now we've got a massive problem with particulate matter. I mean, these are particles, you know, as small as molecules affecting un- unborn children. And that's I suppose, related to the emergence of new technologies as well. And no doubt we'll talk about diesel engines today at at some point. Mm -hmm. Because we can't see this air pollution, the analogy a lot of people use is you would never drink a sort of dirty glass of water, but actually we really are breathing in dirty air and we really, really must treat it the same. So I guess the most general way of looking at a problem like air pollution is to follow what we can call an impact pathway approach or a source pathway receptor approach. We use that in our COVID PPE episode as well. But in the case of air pollution, you start with identifying the source of emissions into the air. So it could be a stationary source like a power generation plant, for example, or it could be mobile sources like cars and other vehicles. And it could be emissions of lots of different pollutants that sort of I listed. We won't go through a long list of things, but we'll come to some examples of specific uh, emissions and their impacts. Then scientists look at what happens once those emissions go up in the air. They get blown around with the wind and they disperse. Lots of experts that do dispersion modeling. So it's a mixture of what goes up in the air, where it goes up. Is it downwind, upwind? Pollutants in the air, they get dispersed, they then settle on things. They could settle on vegetation and it could affect the growth of trees or plants. It could settle on buildings and it could corrode building material. Or it settle around humans and we breed them in into our lungs, into our bodies. And that's why the lungs are first hit by air pollutants. And then it causes lots of impacts. And we try and quantify those impacts and wherever possible, express those impacts in terms of monetary costs. Because we need to prove to policymakers, investors, businesses and to people that it is worth reducing this problem because the problem is costing us a lot of money, a lot of lives and a lot of pain and suffering. 
so my my work as an economist is at that end of the impact pathway. And I used to work a lot on air pollution in the 90s. And I've stopped working in that because one day I remember sitting by a very big spreadsheet and I suddenly had this realization that these numbers I've been crunching are are people suffering asthma attacks and they're going into hospital and they're having a terrible time and I'm here going, oh, this is a large number, this is a small number and I thought, oh my God, I can't handle this and I moved away from working on air pollution which is a, which might be a very selfish choice. It's interesting. I mean, generally, when we're talking about impact pathways, we're talking about ecological impacts where we can do experiments where we expose organisms to certain concentrations of toxins or certain environments and look at the impact. One of the reasons this is more challenging is we're not allowed to do experiments on people. And therefore, we're often looking for lines of evidence that are correlative. We're looking at long-term evidence of health impacts on populations that are exposed to pollution, but they're not controlled in the lab. So often there are many factors that come together, which is one of the reasons it's harder to build a compelling case. Well, I think the Ella Kissy Deborah case that Jill highlighted in in the opening, that's a classic demonstration of how these things are still coming to light in a way. I mean, the, the, the poor girl only died, you know, this decade. And at that time, the coroner did not account for air pollution contributing to her death. And then it took Professor Stephen Holgate to get involved and actually talk to her mother and kind of say, look, I've, there's a worrying trend of air pollution around where, you know, your daughter was living. We need to look at this in more detail. And her mother, Rosamond, who has since gone on to be a World Health Organization ambassador, um, and rightly so, brilliant campaigner, really took the fight and got a second inquest into her death. It's only, as Jill was saying, like last month or this month even, sorry. It's still it's still twenty twenty, isn't it? It's only recently that they've been able to actually explicitly link that. Um and that that's groundbreaking and I think it'll to a lot more investigations in the new year. So Ollie, there are a lot of not just not just scientific, but environmental justice implications from findings like this, aren't there? Well, absolutely. I mean, Ella was from a BAME background uh, in the UK. We say BAME, which is Black, Asian minority ethnic demographic, and people from those backgrounds and also people from more deprived communities are often most affected by air pollution, especially in a city like London. And a lot of the time that is also related to exposure of very harmful levels of air pollution because these people live near some of the busiest roads as well. In Ella's case, they live near one of the busiest roads in the UK, which is called the South Circular Road, which I believe Jill knows <laughs> very well. And there are many interventions that need to be put in place to address that, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto that. This environmental injustice does need to be resolved. You know, if you take a city like London, it's the very poor people who actually don't own a car who are being affected the most um, by this pollution. Um, and, and, and that's kind of where the injustice really lies. Ollie, perhaps you could talk a little bit about the projects that you've been working on, particularly to monitor air quality in London, just as an example of a city. And also, I, I'm really interested to know what's happened during lockdown, where particularly in March and April of this year, we all, we all experienced something that felt like a lot cleaner air. What was actually happening then and, and how you know what was happening then? 
Well, as we were talking about earlier, pollution goes very unnoticed because it's invisible. And, and a lot of the work we've been doing, Environmental Defense Fund, is about making that invisible visible, uh, as we call it. And um, we've been doing a lot of work bringing air quality monitoring uh, to cities to help bring data to life, identify things that the scientific modeling um, doesn't see, and uh, importantly, engaging with communities and helping them to understand that the levels of air pollution in their local area and re relating that to the uh, health impacts we've just been talking about. And a lot of that is about identifying pollution hotspots and installing sort of what we've called hyper-local air quality sensors, which allow people to go on a website, for example, and see what the levels of air pollution are um, practically in their doorstep. And then calibrating that with the much more expensive uh, regulatory uh, monitoring uh, sites that we're very um, fortunate to have in London so that we can then learn sort of the scientific calibration so that these hyper-local sensors that you can deploy much more easily and at a lower cost, you can then put in uh, other areas and other communities that don't already have that sophisticated network. What sort of actions are triggered by the data from your monitoring stations? We got a new mayor in London four years ago, Sadiq Khan, and he decided to set up an alert system, actually. So to get the message out to some of the most vulnerable in the city that when pollution levels are high, then they should sort of lay back on doing outdoor or strenuous outdoor activity, for example, uh, especially um, people with asthma, uh, more older people, uh, people who are pregnant, going by busy roads, for example, and taking quieter roads. So immediately it was important to get that message out, which was not necessarily getting out. Um, the UK government hasn't done a great deal on that. Um, and um, it wasn't a priority for the, uh, the previous mayor either. But I suppose there's a balance for people to take when pollution levels are high in terms of much more healthy individuals. They shouldn't sort of hold back on exercising as well, because that obviously brings other health benefits. It's interesting that those responses really put the onus on the individuals at risk controlling pathways by modifying their behavior. Are they ever used to trigger control actions? Not very often. I know Paris did introduce some emergency legislation when they have a pollution episode, they would ask people not to drive or regulate it. Uh, China have had the odd even vehicle number plate system, which has got pros and cons to it. But the the issue of pollution episodes and, and monitoring and and to some extent modeling is that when you identify a pollution episode, it's important to get the message out in in advance. So I think on the day of a pollution episode, you need to have informed people, I suppose, using sort of the monitors, but more importantly, the modeling, thinking about what the weather is going to be like on a certain time of day and how that might interact with the sort of temperature and the, and the, le and the levels of pollution anyway, and get that message out in advance so that people can uh, change their behavior. They won't light their wood burning stove on that day, you know, things like that. So I think that's where it really comes mm -hmm. into its own. When I was a kid, I grew up near Los Angeles, and we would get smog alerts, and that would mm. affect whether we got recess during school and also activities. But you know, over the decades, they also did things to control a number of the major mm. sources, mainly after the 1984 Olympics. Mm. We've had a similar circumstance recently with our 
uh, when we were managing the Breathe London Hyperlocal Air Quality Monitoring Network in London, there was a primary school on a very busy road and the head teacher used the readings of, of the network to think about very carefully when the children would go out into the playground at what time of day as well, because we've seen when we sort of monitor air pollution at such a hyperlocal level, you can see how pollution varies and the diurnal pattern, like and obviously there's a big morning peak where we've actually seen sort of pollution levels during the school drop-off time, for example, like being almost like um, twice as high as you would expect to see at other times of day. Our work in London is part of a worldwide initiative that Environmental Defence Fund are undertaking. Uh, at the moment, only about one in 10 people around the world are breathing clean air. Um, and we have a website, globalcleanair.org, which uh, helps people to understand the health impacts of air pollution and uh, our work in London on monitoring air pollution as part of the Breathe London pilot project. I think it's important to keep sustaining this kind of data collection so that they can feed into science and policy and solutions. Is that your view as well? Absolutely. We're actually producing a, a blueprint for hyperlocal air quality monitoring that we hope to see projects like Breathe London replicated elsewhere that complement existing regulatory air quality monitoring networks, or they actually enable new air quality monitoring in areas that have never been um, researched before. Pollution monitoring ultimately has three goals. One is about raising public awareness, um, which in turn drives action from individuals. Uh, the other is about uh, measuring how well an intervention is actually doing and also identifying pollution hotspots. So an example of a hotspot we uncovered through the Breathe London pilot project was a bus garage, which is uh, very close uh, to where people live and a primary school in an area in Islington in London. And we actually found very high levels of nitrogen dioxide, which were breaching the hourly limit that you allowed in a day. And we highlighted that to the bus garage operator and the mayor of London and then also the local councillors. And um, it turned out that because when we looked at the diurnal profile of the air pollution um, we were recording, it was like much later in the evening, we were getting very high levels. And it was about how the buses were arriving at the garage. And actually, they were almost standing on the residential street. And there was big delays getting them into the bus garage. And by sort of changing the way that um, the buses entered the garage, um, also new abatement technology to upgrade the buses to reduce the amount of pollution coming out of the exhaust and switching to electric buses we've started to see a gradual reduction in the amount of pollution in that area which is ultimately outside someone's house and it's outside a primary school so these sort of hotspots unfortunately do exist in cities and, and it's, it's projects like the breathe london pilot project that has helped to uncover them but now we've done that we we must sort of replicate that action elsewhere because it's it's bound to be occurring I'm interested, Ollie, in what we learned about air pollution during the lockdown. So many of us actually felt that we were breathing much cleaner air, which would presumably relate to traffic sources. I'm just wondering how, whether that was an accurate picture of what was actually happening. Did we learn anything new or interesting during that time? We found levels of nitrogen dioxide, which is an invisible, very harmful gas that London and many other places in Europe, especially, have been grappling with as a result of diesel fumes, reduced by about 40% um, over the time of the lockdown, which is very, very significant. And that was in, in addition to uh, recent reductions in that gas, which was the result of a big scheme in London called the Ultra Low Emission Zone, which regulated um, the types of emissions coming from vehicles. 
And a lot of people talked about feeling cleaner air and clearly it was evident with that pollutant. But the other major pollutant that we're tackling in London is called particulate matter. So it's a really tiny particles that can be as small as molecules. And and that didn't really change much. Or in fact, we actually experienced a pollution episode, a particulate pollution episode. Um, and we also had ozone episodes as well over the summer, which occurs interestingly because as you reduce the amount of nitrogen dioxide the way that the chemicals work in the atmosphere you you could end up with more ozone which we all know from the ozone layer but if it comes at ground level really affects people's uh, health and it's really not meant to be there so it's much more complex unfortunately um, and i think that's what these monitoring networks help to do a little bit is kind of distinguish between the pollutants help us to understand how those pollutants change over the time of day according to the different sources that might be in, in the local area as well now, I've noticed that a lot of what you've said is associated with diesel and the burning of diesel. Now, as an expat, I noticed coming here that the British fleet is much more diesel intensive than it is in North America. Why is that? And what have the consequences been? Well, um, I would say beware of climate policy, because <laughs> I'm sure Jill will have a reaction to that. Yeah, I think it's one of the unintended consequences of well-intentioned but poorly thought through policy. And I think that's one of the reasons we have the Join the Dots podcast is actually to make sure that we do join the dots between um, an action here and the, the consequences of it over there. Europe made a decision fairly early on to promote diesel to reduce carbon emissions, but created an air quality problem uh, or exacerbated an existing air quality problem as they did so. But can we clarify that that it wasn't the case that science didn't know no, diesel exactly. was, was going to that. have more air pollution emissions. Experts did say, yes, diesel will reduce carbon emissions, but it will increase nitrogen oxide, sulfur oxides, and that will have air quality air health impacts for people. It was the politicians that really chose to act within their silos. As you say, the priority was carbon and it, and also it was an easy policy to sell because diesel cars have suddenly become cheaper to run. So no one was going to argue necessarily against that prioritization. I wouldn't just put the politicians in the silo. I mean, no. Jill was saying it's well-intentioned. I agree with everything you just said as well. Yeah. The, the, the other piece that we're, we're not necessarily bringing into play here is the role of industry. So a lot of the scientists knew that we'd get this harmful pollution from switching to diesel, but it was meant to be heavily regulated by um, the European Commission and there were European vehicle you know, emission standards called Euro standards that were meant to, well, actually, as we look to the future, these cars are going to get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner because we're heavily regulating the abatement technology to go on them. Well, unfortunately, some members of industry did not um, necessarily play by the rules and there have definitely been some loops that have been mm. have jumped through and it was a remarkable time in my work around 2015 when actually diesel cars had just eclipsed petrol car sales in the UK we were you know seeing these dangerous levels of nitrogen dioxide um, in the city knowing it was the result of a lot of the NOx fumes turning into NO2 in the atmosphere coming from these diesel vehicles we also knew about the underperformance of, of diesel vehicles as well at the time and we were screaming about it but no one was really mm -hmm. listening uh, we introduced the regulations to try and clean up these vehicle fleets and then 
wham, Dieselgate happened in autumn of that year and things really did change and public perception changed. And we went from diesel being the thing to be purchasing, which had been incentivized by governments through tax regimes, to actually being what a lot of us now call dirty diesel. Mm -hmm. So London has done another huge air quality experiment with the congestion charge. What changes happened and what were the good and bad lessons from that? Yeah, I would argue the congestion charge had much more impact on sustainable travel, public transport ridership, how people changed how they move around. There were pollution benefits, climate benefits, health benefits. But I would argue that the bigger scheme is the ultra-low emission zone that just came in recently. The congestion charge is effectively a charge which enables you to continue to drive your vehicle in the zone, but everyone effectively pays it. You know, you get that for the pleasure of driving at peak time in, in central London. And it really reduced traffic levels. It also reduced congestion considerably. But what we now see in London is congestion levels are actually back to thereabouts what they were when the congestion charge first came in. Now, the reason for that is the, the mayor was able to take away more space from the roads to put in more bike lanes, for example, but congestion is kind of creeping back up again. So we're going to have to look at them, how we might actually um, mm. price the use of roads in the future. And a lot of NGOs, a lot of government now are talking about that. Before we jump on to something else, can you explain about the ultra-low emission zone as well? The ultra-low emission zone uh, was a project conceived quite a few years ago and it, and it came into effect in the center of the city from April uh, last year and it's an area of about 20 square kilometers it operates 24 hours seven days a week and effectively what it does is sets a charge on people driving in that area the older more polluting vehicles so we're talking about a diesel car that is six years or older or a lorry or a bus, for example, and it distinguishes between diesel and petrol. So you can have a much older petrol car because actually the NOx emissions coming from those vehicles uh, are the equivalent to a much newer diesel car. And that's the issue we found ourselves when we were talking about developing the ultra-low emission zone. The, the backlash we got from industry was about, you need to be technology neutral. And we're like, well, actually, these technologies do have quite a different impact on the amount of pollution that, that comes out. So that scheme um, has been in place for a while now. It's really reduced the levels of uh, nitrogen dioxide, but excitingly, it's going to expand about 18 times bigger next year, which is going to be a massive game changer because it's going to come to residential areas such as uh, the area that I live in at the minute. What's the relationship between that and black cabs, which I understand still pollute quite a lot? Yes, it's a very interesting policy area, the London cabs. There have been some very effective policies that were introduced through gritted teeth, I think, in discussion with the drivers' associations, such as having a maximum vehicle age limit, which I'm doing my best to advocate for other cities around the world, because that helps to guarantee mm. that you're getting cleaner vehicles into the fleet over a period of time. So as a London cabbie, you can now have a cab around 12, 13, 14 years old. It's gradually changing and they also mandated that they have to start purchasing electric hybrid versions of the black cab, which is very exciting, but also very expensive. So the history here is that in London, the cabbies are effectively told what type of vehicle they have to use. So you've got the iconic black cab like you're talking about, which is also wheelchair accessible, a very good vehicle for people to travel around in, but very expensive. So once you've purchased one of these, you want to really get your use of it. 
So we're talking about almost like £50,000 to buy one of these uh, vehicles. Mm. So it was very challenging to see the amount of pollution coming from these vehicles and turn around to the cabbies and say, I'm really sorry, but your vehicle is causing a massive headache for um, levels of pollution in the city. You've got to stop using it. And they're like, well, this is my livelihood and this is a really expensive vehicle and you've effectively told me I have to buy this. So what what are you going to do about it? So there was a very interesting um, complex trade-off terms of the policies that the mayor would introduce to help them get into cleaner vehicles including some financial incentives but ultimately that mm-hmm. led them to being exempt from uh, the congestion charge uh, originally some time ago but also the ultra low emission zone because there are other regulations that have been put in place instead to try and make it fairer for the industry to change out of these really polluting vehicles. So, I mean, whenever we talk about these things, there are winners and losers. There are social impacts from all these charges and schemes, aren't there? Definitely. And and as cabbies will say to you, you know, immediately, like, they're some of the people that are exposed the most to this pollution sitting in, in these vehicles all day in the, in the middle of the road. So they do know that. And I think it's it's made it a very interesting policy area to work in for quite some time now because you've got that balance of making a just transition at the same time as trying to improve Mm. uh, air quality as fast as possible. So for example, the Mayor of London also introduced a vehicle scrappage scheme, which has been debated in local and national government for some time around the value of that, because you don't necessarily just want to give people who have the money to get a newer vehicle um, to scrap their vehicle. You need to be able to target it. So there was a targeted scheme introduced in London that was for low-income residents and and people who had adapted their vehicles for disability needs as well, um, which kind of coincided with the introduction of the new regulations that we were just talking about earlier. Mm. So mostly we focused on transport. What other large sectors should we be thinking about? You know, a lot of the talk around transport is obviously related to diesel and nitrogen dioxide, but we've got uh, a lot of issues coming from construction machinery. Unfortunately, there's an added complexity around like what regulatory powers the mayor has, because the Metro Mayor as a concept in the UK is only about 20 years old. There are obviously other mayors and cities elsewhere in Europe as well, but cities like New York, the mayor can kind of control the roads, but then doesn't control the subway. So all these complexities of how you kind of introduce policies to reduce air pollution in cities vary between city by city because of what powers they have. Most mayors you'll speak to will always want more powers. For example, on on construction machinery, the mayor doesn't have power to regulate that machinery, but there are emission standards that you can try to get developers to use cleaner equipment Um, And that's been done um, primarily through the planning legislation at the moment. There are also commercial buildings. So if we wanted to talk about the interaction between climate policy and air quality policy again, then look no further than combined heat and power plants that have gone into um, buildings, which have led to a lot of uh, massive gas boilers, which have contributed to um, poor air quality, Mm. especially in really dense areas of the city as well. And there's a big push now to go much more towards heat pumps, um, which I know uh, Jill is a big fan of as well, and I'm seeing thumbs up for all round. Um, so again, that's a really interesting example about how we do need to join the dots between mm. these two policy areas. I think if I can join just have one dots. other thing, <laughs> if I can have one other thing about these, uh, where the pollution is coming from. If we look at the particulates, though. There's a big issue of domestic wood burning in London. This is wholly seen as a luxury that people have afforded themselves in the city and they're really not thinking about the impact it has on uh, other people, especially in the winter season. 
And then there's also um, the issue that around half of the particulates uh, we get in the city causing the big episodes that we see in the winter seasons come from elsewhere. They don't come, they aren't generated in the city. So there's big discussions to be had around how we continue to ensure national emission ceiling directives um, as set by the European Union, for example, are effective because we see um, industry sources blowing in particulates into the city. We also see uh, impacts from agriculture as well elsewhere in the UK and, and then also in um, other countries. Can I give you the example of Delhi exactly on that point, actually? Mm. So Delhi has been suffering from a horrendous air pollution problem last two, three years. Obviously, it's a huge city. It's got a lot of old vehicles and transport is a big contributor. But what made it much worse in the last three years is pollution coming from outside Delhi. And it's so bad that people have to live with air cleansers on all the time in their houses and even in their cars. There are air filters in the cars that are running. Mm. You, you really cannot breathe when it's in a bad day. And the cause of this is a change in the farming subsidy scheme mm. in a couple of upwind states from Delhi, which meant the farmers used to have time in between two cropping seasons and two subsidy payments to clean the fields manually, so take off the roots of previous crop. But because they changed the payment frequency, they have to clean and recrop the fields very quickly and they don't have time to do it manually, so they burn the fields. Wow. And uh, they burn the crop residue. And the wind from the Himalayas take the that whole pollution smoke all the way to Delhi. Unlike a lot of episodes where we talk about individual choice, and there's still some here, a lot of what we need to do to solve these problems have to do with action and advocacy and pressuring people at different levels of society or enabling them to work together. So how do we frame these questions and how do we start making a difference? You you talked about data, and I'm interested in talking about the pathway from data to action. Edgy, you've talked about economic arguments, but there are also social and moral arguments here, aren't there? And political ones. And there are some really difficult reactions that people have. So one of the things that's happened post-COVID around where I live is some of the roads have been closed to actually make driving less attractive. And all it's done is in enrage many, many residents who seem to spend all of their time actually just thinking that this is a personal affront and haven't joined haven't joined the dots with why that might be a policy decision in order to reduce air pollution. So it's not being terribly effective. It's displacing pollution and probably making it worse on my street, actually. Mm. We can also talk about, you know, if we're looking at road transport, the need to to walk and cycle more. But if everybody else is still driving their vehicles, it becomes a very unpleasant option to take. So it does seem that we can make personal choices, but actually the bigger impact is definitely one that is a policy decision. But policy decisions don't happen in a vacuum. I mean, the same kind of road closures happened near where I live in East London as well. And it was a terrible decision because the road they closed was a relief road from A12, and it was basically protecting the outer edges of the local park and about 25 houses. What that caused in the main road where I live, um, about four-hour congestion. And actually local people got in touch with the local council and said, we don't think this is a good idea. And they have revised it. What it did on both roads, the traffic flow is 
restricted compared to previously, but not in a way that causes hotspots in one place and protects the smaller number of population elsewhere. So there is a personal choice. You know, we can't say, oh, the terrible council, terrible mayor has done a bad decision. I just have to live with it. But actually, you can get in touch with your council and you can, you know, mayoral elections coming up all over the world all the time. Read manifestos and see what they're committing to. I think that's a really good point because you've shown how people considered the unintended consequences of decisions because a lot of the stories we've told today have been about unintended consequences and they did something about it which leads us right back to you Oliver doesn't it because data and your hyperlocal data would have really helped and should really help in making those decisions that we realize when we've done something that has the wrong effect totally agree and that's where as i mentioned like the three goals one of them is around measuring how well an intervention is working and adjusting that um according to the you know real time impacts on air quality oliver with your experience working i think you've worked for transport for london the gla now working with environmental defense fund on this what are the kind of policies that we should be on the lookout for that speak to us that administrations understand the problem and how to deal with it you always need to lead from the front so an, an example would be as as a city mayor, you you should be looking to um, get your municipal bus fleet as clean as possible and transitioning that to electric, getting rid of diesel and, and showing there's possibility because that also helps to achieve your climate goals as, as well as um, reducing air pollution. And importantly, it creates this green economy that we're all working towards, helping to transition the vehicle manufacturing industry over to electric and creating new jobs. Mm. I'd love to see visionary thinking around how we introduce a new sort of way of people paying to use roads in the city, because when you use a vehicle, not only you're emitting dangerous pollution onto the streets, but you're not really necessarily paying the true cost of using that vehicle because we you know we've seen the social cost of air pollution in Europe alone estimated to be 166 billion pounds a year and then you know 10 billion pounds a year in, in London alone there needs to be a rebalancing um, and we need some strong leadership to basically say you know this is almost like a, a hierarchy of how people should be using roads according to the health impacts um, it causes that's what I love to see, but obviously with city leaders and when they get elected, they generally have quite short terms. So it's about what they can introduce in the short term. Mm. But I'd love to see some visual thinking around that. Bus fleet changing. I think it's a fantastic point to start, actually, Oli. That's very good because the procurement power that large organizations, they have the power to make a difference. But that's a technological solution. It can never be the only solution, right? Absolutely. There's also the behavioral solution and there's also the responsibility keep monitoring whether these solutions are working. And I think individually, we all have that responsibility. You talked right at the beginning, Oli, about making the invisible visible. Same for, you know, fine particulates that we don't see or feel we're breathing. But it's also same with some type of evidence. So what becomes visible about these policy choices or individual choices is the actual cash you spend or the tax you pay towards. Yeah. That's very visible. What's not visible at all is the economic cost of health impacts. You mentioned, you know, at least tens of millions in UK. I think Environmental Audit Committee of the Parliament in UK said it's 8 to 20 billion across the country mm. and many, many billions across the world. That's our hard-earned value <laughs> being lost 
and our lives being lost and quality of our lives being lost. And that's the kind of work that I specialize and we use money as our metric because we want to make these hidden costs very visible and very directly comparable to the cost of these actions. So, Ollie, we've talked a lot about transport, and it's clear that combustion is a big problem. In another episode, we're going to talk about electric vehicles. So if we all go to e-bikes and electric cars, have we solved the problem? <laughs> Great question. I think, you know, also today we've talked a lot about unintended consequences as well on the interaction between climate and air quality policy. Um, electric vehicles clearly will have a major role uh, to play in improving air quality in cities. But um, we do really need to be mindful of the level of harmful particles we're seeing from tire and brake wear of vehicles and road dust, which effectively is is saying to policymakers, it's not just good enough to clean up or remove the exhaust pipe altogether. It's also important to encourage people to be actually using vehicles uh, less and less. So, you know, we're seeing lots of short journeys being made in cars still in cities, and that needs to change. And we need to see more cycling and walking. We need to take inspiration from cities like Amsterdam, which had clogged streets in the 70s and really transformed how people um, get around. Amsterdam hasn't been a cycling mecca for like centuries. It's only been in the past few decades that things have changed. And we're seeing the same transformation happening in Paris, where they're just ripping out or transforming those really antiquated, effectively urban motorways by the side of the River Seine and and actually making it uh, an enjoyable experience for people to cycle and, and walk around. And not just the everyday sort of cyclists that you can imagine. In, in the UK, we call them mammals, middle-aged men in lycra, but it's actually, you know, transforming the demographic of cycling as well and making it much um, safer for families uh, to, to get around. And, and older people, you know, in Amsterdam now, every like one in two sales of a bicycle is actually an electric bicycle. So the combining the two, which is enabling the elderly to get around on bikes as well, who, who are less agile, perhaps from those mammals I talked about. Following up on the changes we've seen in other cities, are there trends from COVID, from what we've experienced this year, that impact on this? And what are they? And how do you see that playing out? What we've seen has been an acceleration of trends that were emerging. So people were starting to work from home more often. And sadly, we've been doing that for quite a uh, considerable amount of time now. But that is leading to concern around a lot of people working at home, turning their boilers on and heating their homes like I'm doing because it's absolutely freezing today. But then also you've got half occupied offices because some people are going back. You've got those commercial buildings heating at the same time as all the domestic properties, which are not very well insulated. You could end up with a cauldron of additional emissions that were, again, unintended from um, the good intentions of enabling people to continue to connect with each other over um, video screens. But I do look forward to spending more time with you in real life as well, Jill. I think the other issue uh, or acceleration is the rise of e-commerce. So I, I just earlier during the duration of this podcast got a lovely uh, home delivery and, and many more people are getting those. But that is accelerating a worrying trend. And I'll speak again on behalf of London. We've seen a massive rise in the amount of light commercial vehicles. And it's not just a London issue. These are like cities across Europe where more and more of these diesel vans are being used to do, uh, make just-in-time deliveries. Individuals really need to think carefully around 
do you really need it tomorrow? Can you get it in a few days and actually get that delivered to a local hub near you, your local shop or what have you? And it'd be much better for the environment because right now we've seen about a 54% increase in the amount of vehicle kilometers being driven by these light commercial vehicles over the past 10 years or so. All other vehicle types are on decline, but vans are becoming a big issue and they're going to clog the streets. And unfortunately, they're predominantly diesel. So I look forward to hearing more about your episode on electric vehicles because they should be a priority sector. One thing that we've noticed the importance of during the pandemic is the green spaces and street trees. We talked about reducing the emissions, which is obviously the first thing that we should do. And it's right to give priority to that. But we mustn't forget the importance of green space in absorbing air pollutants. Then I think there are examples from around the world where the big motorways going through the cities being replaced by green spaces. I think Seoul and Korea did that with very good results. And again, we'll put them on on our website so that we can share good stories, stories that we can overcome these problems, um, however terrible they are. We need to be encouraged to take action. We don't have to live like this. You should take some inspiration from a local authority in London called Hackney who are looking to change their streets, remove car parking and install trees on the road so it becomes like an urban forest and actually reclaiming that space because, like you say, trees are important not just for air pollution but for the climate as well and then also they have a fantastic benefit for even just looking at them as individuals and making you feel healthier. This has been a very important year to think about air quality. We've had COVID and we know that actually poor air quality can increase our susceptibility to COVID. We've had the first time that air quality has been put on the death certificate of a citizen for Ella Adu Kisi Deborah. We've had many governments around the world committing for climate reasons, predominantly rather than air quality reasons, to phase out combustion engines for cars and vans. As we've sat at home, we've had more things delivered to us by vans. And all of these things have impacted on our air quality one way or another and not always in the ways that we might expect. So as Oliver has pointed out today, actually switching to electric vehicles can help with some pollutants, but actually with particulate matter from tyres and brakes, they're still around with electric vehicles as well. Our use of deliveries has actually probably increased the number of diesel vehicles on the road. So these are complex things. There's a lot of evidence already out there about the damage that this is doing to our health and to the most vulnerable in society. But it's quite important for us to continue to monitor where the air quality impacts are so that we can, one, take action on them and, two, see if policies are working. I think we've also recognised in this episode that it's although there are choices that we can make, that this requires action at a higher level and that we need to hold our political masters to account One of the things that we can look to for local mayors and officials is to see that they put their money where their mouth is and that they look at tackling the electrification or producing clean vehicles for public transport. So that's a key indicator of understanding whether they understand the issues. We talked briefly on the importance of other measures, maybe even those that help us with pollution, such as trees. I think this is an issue that we are going to come back to again and again as things move forward because it's complex, the pollutants change over time and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but it's clearly extremely important. 
for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uygur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com.